Hi, everyone. Paul Anderson here. We recorded this episode of the podcast before the COVID-19 pandemic really took hold here in the U.S., and so you won't hear us mention the pandemic in our conversation. It's about alarm safety and management, and it's maybe more relevant now than ever as ICUs continue to manage an influx of patients. But since you won't hear anything about the pandemic, we thought you should know why. All right, here's the episode. Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today we're talking about alarm safety, a problem that's been recognized in healthcare for more than a decade. Alarm fatigue, when providers become immune to nuisance alarms that may not be actionable, can lead them to eventually ignore alarms that are important and actionable, and of course, can lead from there to patient harm. We'll talk about why this problem has persisted, the intersection of people and technology that can make it worse, and strategies for combating it. To get us started, I'll ask our guest to introduce himself. Hello, my name's Mark Schlesinger. I've been with ECRI for a little bit over five years. Uh, previous to coming to ECRI, I worked in hospital operations and management for about 40 years. I do have a clinical background as a respiratory therapist for uh, 45 years. So Mark, let's start with some basics. When we talk about problems with clinical alarms, what are those problems, and do we have any sense of, of how pervasive they are? I believe the, the largest problem is there are too many alarms that are non-actionable. We're going to talk about non-actionable alarms uh, a little bit later, but uh, when I speak of a non-actionable alarm, we're, we're talking about alarms that will self-correct within a few seconds without any caregiver interaction and most importantly, causes absolutely no harm to the patient. A good example of a non-actionable alarm is one or two high-pressure alerts on a ventilator due to a patient coughing, or a quick drop in oxygen saturation from 90 to 89% for a second or two. Uh, both of these types of alarms we classify as non-actionable. And just by the way, studies have shown that approximately 85 to 90% of all alarms are non-actionable. Think how quiet your unit would be by reducing alarms by 85%. So that, that makes me think, it, when we say 85 or 90% of alarms, do we have any sense of, like, is there a hard number for that? Like, so a, a typical patient might trigger X number of alarms of which, you know, yeah, if they trigger 100 alarms a day and there's really only 10 you need to do anything about? Sure. It, it truly depends on the patient, uh, how many different monitors and machines such as ventilators and other um, heart-lung assist units they're connected to. But it is not uncommon for a patient in an ICU to easily have 200 to 300 alarms a day. And doing some quick math, you're saying that 270 of those 300 are these non-actionable alarms Ish. Cor Correct, and, and truly, uh, when we go into a hospital uh, for an alarm management 
engagement. We're not looking to eliminate alarms. We're looking to decrease non-actionable alarms to a tolerable limit. So, you know, I mentioned in the opening that this is something we've known about for a long time. How long has this been a known issue? I would say this really started in the early 2000s. When I started as a respiratory therapist, the common ventilators back then had two or three different types of alarms. And physiologic monitoring, uh, the heart monitors, basically had a high rate alarm and a low rate alarm. And, And that was it. Today, modern complex ventilators can have 125 different alarms. So you can see there's a huge uh, variance there. And um, the physiologic monitors monitor everything. It's not just high and low rates anymore. It's different arrhythmias. We're monitoring pressures of the patient and and, um, many other um, physiologic parameters. So, you know, you mentioned we do a lot of work where we're going into hospitals to work with them on their alarm management processes. Can you share an example uh, or two of a situation where we've seen this go really wrong? Yes. So the one that really comes to mind was there was a um, situation that occurred at a major academic teaching center on Christmas Day. Uh, It was a telemetry floor. It was not an ICU. And the staff actually put wet towels over the speakers for an alarm system to muffle the sound as it kept alarming and it was disturbing the staff. Um, Unfortunately, a patient had a arrhythmia. It was unnoticed because the speakers were covered up and uh, that patient died. And and this is the issue with nuisance, or uh, I almost said nuisance alarms, but but with the non-actionable alarms, right, is they become white noise. We try to block them out, and then we miss the real ones. Correct. Uh, Another time, we we do a lot of work with telemetry units, and uh, we were asked to look into an incident that occurred in a uh, telemetry monitoring room where the patient tech was asked to monitor too many patients. And uh, one of the patients went into a cardiac arrhythmia. It was undetected for a period of time. When it was detected, detected, a cardiac arrest was called. The patient was coded. However, it was too late to resuscitate the patient. So not to put too fine a point on this, but we mentioned, you you mentioned the early 2000s. This has been on the Joint Commission's National Patient Safety Goal list, I believe, since they started having National Patient Safety Goals, right? So why haven't we fixed it yet? So this actually, uh, the Joint Commission released this initially uh, for 2012. Okay. Um, It was National Patient Safety Goal number six Mm -hmm. of, I believe they're up to 14 or 16 now. Uh, It's important to note that many times the Joint Commission will... uh, take a uh, MPSG off the list. However, this has remained on the list. Yeah, uh, We continue to see hospitals struggling with this issue. Uh, some hospitals have been very, very effective in, in conquering alarm fatigue. Uh, other hospitals we go into uh, have just barely touched the surface. They, they they, they feel they're doing the job because they hold a committee meeting once in a while. It's on paper. However, unfortunately, there's been many sentinel events occurring because of alarm fatigue. It sounds like, you know, you described the, the issue of, the, of, you know, 
putting a wet towel over the speaker to muffle it. So it sounds like there's, you know, maybe a technology issue. We've got 125 possible alarms on this machine and also a people and and process issue. Are we able to say, you know, how does that balance out? Is this mostly a technology issue? Is it mostly a people issue? Is Does it vary by hospital? It, it really varies unit to unit. Mm. Um it truly depends on what technology is being used. Some ICUs are obviously more uh, advanced than other ICUs with the monitoring and treatment capabilities. So obviously, the you know the more advanced the ICU, the more alarms you're going to have. Uh, unfortunately, in healthcare, everyone will tell you that we rely too much on technology and we don't look at the patient. And uh, again, I think that really started. Um, in, in the late 1990s or early 2000s when technology really became very advanced. And, uh, you know, the first thing that happens when an alarm goes off is you look at the piece of equipment rather than the patient. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, you know what? I hadn't thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense. I can I can think back to scenarios where I've been, you know, not in the hospital to visit somebody or something. And that's exactly, that's my reaction too as a non-clinician. The thing beeps and I look at the thing mm-hmm. instead exactly. of the person. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, we've seen a lot of strategies to try to help limit some of these, these non-actionable alarms that, uh, maybe go beyond what you just described of have a committee and a piece of paper. Um, can you describe some of those strategies that we've seen that are actually pretty effective? Sure. Well, the first thing you need is data. You really need to look at your current practice and see which alarms are the most common alarms and we call them the bad actors. So, mm-hmm. for example, a very common alarm is on pulse oximetry, your low saturation alarm. Uh, we worked with a hospital that saw many alarms alarming, many pulse oximeter alarms alarming at 89%. So, they brought up the question to me could we lower that from 90%, which is, for whatever reason, the common low saturation alarm number to uh, 88%. And we did some research and we suggested that in on one particular unit that they trial this using the old PDCA method of, of, um, you know, doing a trial and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually did lower it to 88% with medical director approval, with nurse diligence, respiratory therapy diligence. And they actually found on this one particular unit that by lowering the saturation alarm from 90 to 88%, they decreased their pulse oximetry alarms by about 90%. Wow. which is significant. Uh, this was actually in an emergency department, mm. which was quite noisy, and they adapted the pro- process, and it is still going on. I would say it's been about a year or so ago they did this. Uh, I've been in contact with them several times, and they have not had a adverse patient um, situation because of doing this. So that is a perfect example of how adjusting an alarm a little bit does not lead to any uh, additional patient safety problems. However, it did dramatically decrease alarm fatigue. And and so, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I'm guessing the the thought process there is, look, from a clinical perspective, there's maybe not a meaningful difference in a saturation of 90 to 89% over a very short time. So why tell me about it? 
Correct. It, it can be on critical patients, patients with lung disease, extremely other uh, critical patients for other reasons. So it can, but it, it really depends on the patient. And the other thing we, we, we strongly recommend is uh, alarms need to be tailored to individual patient needs. Mm. So what we recommend is that there is a hospital policy for alarms, who may change them and to what degree. Mm. So um Heart rate is a is a, another good example. Many hospitals use the hard parameters of a high heart rate of 120 and a low heart rate of 60. Okay. But let's say you're an athlete and you come in for whatever reason and your resting heart rate's 50. You are going to continually alarm. Mm-hmm. So um, what we suggest is that you know once the patient is situated and there's some baselines that you adjust the alarms for all the physiologic parameters to meet that individual patient's needs. Now, with that being said, there are several caveats. You still need high and low limits, but they need to be able to be adjusted Mm -hmm. with medical director or medical supervision approval. And again, this needs to be adjusted for every patient that comes in. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, if you have a patient on various medication, they may run a high heart rate of 140. And where that's not common for you or me, if they're on certain medications such such as ADHE drugs, Mm -hmm. Adderall, they're going to run a very high heart rate. And again, you don't want that patient to be alarming all the time. It's figuring out what's normal for you, what's normal for me and for him and her. Exactly. Yeah. So, so again, uh, alarms need to be tailored for that patient within hospital policy right. and with medical uh, approval. You mentioned that, that policy can specify who can uh, authorize those adjustments. What, what kind of role is that typically? So um, most hospitals for the physiologic monitors, it is limited to the uh, nurse, the RN. For ventilators, it's limited to the respiratory therapist. And again, for uh, each piece of equipment, there should be parameters. And if they have to exceed those parameters, they then need uh, physician approval. What kind of role does the organization's culture play in all of this? Culture is huge in alarm fatigue and alarm management. When we go in on a consulting engagement, uh, we always like to talk to senior leadership, the CEO or at least the COO of the organization. Um, The alarm management committee needs senior leadership presence. They need the backing of senior leadership, and they also need senior physician uh, engagement to make any changes. Uh, Many times we will see a hospital that has a, uh, quote, alarm committee. It exists mainly on paper, and they get very little done, and we, we see very little change in in process and uh, procedures. However, we've also gone into hospitals where senior leadership is extremely involved in the alarm management, and that is where we see real change take place. You know, I really like something you said. We often talk about, in the risk and patient safety world, about leadership support. But you said senior leadership presence, and I think that's a really important distinction to draw because there's one thing to say, I support this committee's work. Exactly. It's another thing to show up at the meetings and make it happen. Exactly. And and this goes right down to the unit management. Um, 
we'll actually look at the alarm data unit by unit, and uh, often you'll see one or two units that have a much higher percentage of alarms than other units, and uh, many times this can go back to the unit management. We also know that there are a lot of technology solutions that are, you know, trying to help make these alarms more meaningful. We're, we're, we're fighting technology issues with more technology. Can you describe the role of middleware in this and what it's intended to, to, to do and to help with? Sure. Middleware is very confusing to some people. Middleware is software that, you know, obviously runs on a computer. And middleware solutions can be somewhat simple or they can be extremely complex and very expensive. Middleware will take the alarm data coming from a ventilator or from a physiologic monitor or an or any other device that it's connected to. And it can filter out the alarms that the caregiver actually receives on their device. So it, uh, by FDA, you cannot change, uh, you cannot filter the alarms on the device itself. However, you can filter the alarms that go to the caregiver. The last thing we want is a caregiver to have an iPhone or an other, or other device and every alarm that is coming from the monitor and the ventilator goes to that caregiver because all you're doing then is doubling the amount of alerts technically. Uh, so middleware filters and prioritizes. So for example, uh, an example of prioritizing would be if your patient in room one is having, let's say, a high pressure alarm go off, which is a low priority alarm, and your patient in room two is having uh, VTAC, the, the middleware is going to prioritize that automatically and, and send you the VTAC message first. Another critical component of middleware is what we call escalation. So if I'm in an isolation room with patient one and patient two alarms, uh, I obviously would not be able to get to that patient quick enough. So I can just tap escalate on my device and that will automatically send that alarm, that alarm to another caregiver on my team mm. so they can immediately act on that. Mm -hmm. The biggest advantage of middleware is that it can track and trend alarm data and actually report out on it. Otherwise, it, it's difficult to get data. Um, you'd actually have to go right to the vendor. They charge you for that data usually. Uh, and with middleware, it's, it's a process where you can run a report shift by shift and look at uh, your alarm data, see what's working, see what's not working. So if you said in the very beginning that the first thing you've got to do is get data on what's going on. This is a really important way to do that, it sounds like. Exactly. And if you don't have a middleware solution, you can get the data depending on um, what kind of equipment you're using. But usually it has to go through the vendor. The vendor has to data mine it and then produce a report. They usually will charge you for that. Whereas with middleware, it's part of the package and you just print out a report for your unit. Are there downsides? The downsizes of middleware is if it's, if it's not used correctly, as I mentioned, you do not want every alarm going to the caregiver. When we work with hospitals that install a middleware solution, uh, we often will, will see that they want everything. You know, mm -hmm. they want to check every box and they want the caregivers to get every alarm. And that quickly uh, will change. Uh, prob <laughs> usually within uh, a shift, they'll come find either the vendor or us and they'll start asking us to turn off uh, a lot of the alarms. And that makes it makes me think, you know, you need a lot of input from those frontline caregivers as you're as you're setting this because they're they're 
they're the ones dealing with the consequences. Exactly. It. Yep. The vendors and, and uh, we work with uh, the unit managers and clinicians to see exactly what alarms are 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 important to them. Uh, this varies unit by unit, and it also varies according to the time of the unit because staffing changes in most uh, hospital units from day shift to night shift, and sure. you have to adjust your escalation patterns, if nothing else, to meet those uh, changes. Are there other technologies we're seeing that are either you know deployed now or we see them on the horizon that are intended to help with alarm management? Uh, exactly, yes. We have seen the use of uh, low acuity monitoring in probably three or four hospitals. And uh, low acuity monitoring is usually used via pulse oximetry okay. with very, very wide settings. So you do not get the uh, false um, negatives that you would with a regular pulse oximetry alarm setting. Uh, there's Some hospitals are using this on post-anesthesia patients, patients receiving uh, opioids, and one hospital in particular has put low acuity monitoring on every patient within that hospital. Mm. And uh, they actually have published a few papers and uh, the last paper I saw, I believe they're claiming four or five patients' lives have been saved because of this low acuity monitoring. So what does that mean, low acuity monitoring? So they're monitoring every patient. So even if you come in for um, a, a fractured ankle or mm -hmm. and it's surgically repaired, you would usually be considered um, non-critical. You sure. would be on a med surge or orthopedic floor. So even for those patients, they're being monitored via pulse oximetry with very wide alarm parameter settings. Gotcha. Okay. So my first reaction to that is, oh gosh, if we're monitoring more people, I'm going to see even more alarms. But because of that wide parameters, we're really only getting the meaningful ones. Correct. And um, the settings are so low that the patient has to be extremely critical for the alarms to uh, go off. So a million years ago, I remember <clears throat> writing about the question of how many monitors one person could keep track of, um, like in a central monitoring station. And at the time, that was obviously very much with the idea that the, the monitoring station was in the same building as all the patients. Maybe it was on a different floor. Um, but, you know, but there was this question of how many monitors can I really keep track of carefully? And now with you know the ability of remote telemetry systems, you may have whole systems where the centralized monitoring is in a different building from where the actual patient is. Um, have, have we ever solved that question of, of how many monitors one person can keep track of? And does it change as we get more and more remote from the, the, where the patient physically is? That's a great question. So uh, to answer it quickly, there has never been an evidence-based study that will say a monitor tech should not monitor more than X patients. Um, we like to use the number 36. Okay. And uh, again, that is not an evidence-based number. However, that is what we have seen in best practice. Uh, I have personally seen telemetry techs monitoring 72 patients. Oh, my goodness. And that number in this particular hospital, when one of the other telemetry techs needs to take a uh, personal break, has gone up to well over 100, which is truly ridiculous. You cannot look at that many. As I pointed out before, we were called in into a hospital where they were monitoring 72 and there was a patient fatality. Uh, 
due to that. Um, the number 36 comes up because it's usually uh, two screens or three screens, and, and that is a doable number. It doesn't really matter if you're on the unit monitoring or if you're remote. Uh, monitoring five different hospitals. It's the same amount you're looking at. I would caution that, you know, in any remote situation, be you on another floor or if you're across town monitoring patients, uh, in that situation, the, the critical thing that needs to be looked at is your communications back to the nursing unit. So one of the cautions I'd like everyone to uh, think about when you're dealing with remote telemetry monitoring is the communications link back to the caregiver. You have to think, how is the telemetry tech going to get the message to the caregiver? Is it, is it via a uh, application? Is it a phone call on a smartphone? Is it a pager? However, uh, you have to have a plan and you have to have a backup plan, especially if you are off-site from the actual uh, care unit. Mark, one of the ways I always like to end the podcast is by trying to give a suggestion of something that somebody listening can do today. Um, they obviously are not going to solve alarm safety by the time they clock out at the end of the day. But where can they start? What's something somebody can do this afternoon to get started? I would say go to your particular unit with no other purpose but to listen to the alarms. Uh, look at how the caregivers are reacting to the alarms. Um, if they are not immediately responding to an alarm that persists, is there, why? Is it short staffing? Is it alarm fatigue? You know, what is the issue? I think the most um, low-hanging fruit that can be done reasonably quickly is the adjusting of the alarm parameters to meet the individual patient's requirements and not going by a um, hospital policy with alarm settings. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Learn more about how ECRI can help from our website at www.ecri.org, including our top 10 health technology hazards for 2020, which offers a global view of alarm management focusing on the cognitive load resulting from all of the alarms, alerts, and other notifications that confront clinicians on a daily basis. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.